Method to the Madness is next. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, showcasing Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Nicholas Lalo, and this week we are visited by Pablo Beimler, a community outreach coordinator with the Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization, to tell us about the work his organization is doing to combat wildfires in Hawaii, a landscape more commonly thought of as a tropical paradise than one that shares the same afflictions as California, drought, and wildfire. Hey, Pablo, welcome to the show. Hey, Nick, thanks for having me. Uh, It's pretty much a paradox. Like, Hawaii, we think of this place as a tropical paradise, yet it has a large proportion of wildfires. Why is that? Yeah, no, it's indeed true. There's a misconception that, you know, Hawaii is, um, like you said, tropical, wet all year round. Um, but in the in reality, um, every island in Hawaii has a leeward and a windward side. And on those leeward sides, you get these really dry conditions. You get some areas that actually are drier. Um, they get less rainfall than Tucson, Arizona. Um, and we actually have this wide range of um, different climate zones within even these leeward areas and on the windward sides. Um, so, for one, we have a very diverse landscape. So you'll see landscapes that you have um, here on the mainland that um, are mirrored back on the islands. And to go along with that, we also have this year-long growing season for plants to thrive, um, even on the drier, drier sides. And unfortunately, the, the plants that do grow on those drier sides are mostly invasive, fire-prone um, plants. And what we've seen is this kind of increase in the amount of wildfires um, all across the state, really, and even in the Western Pacific, too, um, where we're getting, you know, more more wildfires, part of, partially because of the types of vegetation that are there, but also because we're having an influx in population. And from a lot of the data that we've um, been working through, we've basically been able to identify that, um, indeed, wildfires are correlated to people. Uh, about 99% of our ignitions are actually started by people. So you have the fuels, you have the ignitions, and of course we have plenty of wind that blows through our islands. So when you have those three, they make up the fire triangle, and that's why we're getting all these wildfires. And you said that wildfire is an introduced concept to the ecology of Hawaii. Um, Can you speak more about that? Sure, yeah. So there's a lot of debate in terms of how much fire was used um, during the um, kind of pre, pre-contact era. Um, native Hawaiian, there are records of Native Hawaiians using fire to help regenerate native grasses such as Pili grass, um, which is a very important cultural um, uh, grass for the Native Hawaiians. Um, and then you have natural ignitions from lightning strikes, but of course we're you know, pretty unique being out there with um, active lava, an active lava source um, constantly spewing out from um, currently the Big Island. And so we've, you know, seen fires that have sprouted from, you know, lava ignitions. But in general, fire was not really part of the, the natural ecology in most of the islands. And it's more of a recent over the past hundred years or so where we've really seen uh, a major uptick in the amount of wildfires and the sheer size in fires um, you go back to 1901, and there was a fire that burned 30,000 acres on the Hamakua coast, which is a pretty wet area on, on the Big Island. That kind of sets a precedent. It shows that areas that are wet could actually burn, too, if 
given the right conditions, you know, during a drought period when all this vegetation that has been so lush and growing for so many years all of a sudden becomes dry, becomes burnable. Um, all you need is one spark and then you have a wildfire. So um, kind of going back to that question, um, a lot of our native ecology is not used to wildfires. A lot of the native plants there are not adapted to fire. And now that it's part of the current ecosystem, um, unfortunately, the native plants can't keep up with all the other plants that have been, um, you know, a, a lot of the invasive fire prone plants that have come onto the islands um, basically thrive. They reproduce after wildfire. And so the native plants really have no chance to come back in competition with, um, with the new plants that are on our islands. And then you start seeing um, a loss in our native forest ecology, which then damages our um, watersheds and our ability to keep water on our lands. It ends up, you'll have days where after a wildfire or even months after a wildfire where um, we'll get a heavy rainfall event, which is pretty typical in Hawaii, um, and it'll wash a lot of that topsoil that's not being held down by what formerly was a forest, goes out into the ocean and then pollutes our coral reefs, which then, of course, has other implications with our coastal resource management and impacts to fisheries and impacts to local fishermen and impacts to our tourism. So there's this whole wide wide range of impacts that can happen from from this introduced wildfire system that we have. And so... As an introduced system, how did you first, or how did Hawaii first start managing um, fire? It's a very good question. It's a, um, again, wildfire management, is, it's a pretty new concept relative to, um, you know, a lot of other places in the world, and especially in the U.S., where, you know, over a century ago, wildfire suppression only was really the, the main focus on the mainland. And that's kind of what we're seeing now with these major Yosemite fires and um, these uncontrollable fires that are not really natural parts of the mainland ecosystems. Mm. Um, but it was that mentality of constantly suppressing, keeping keeping all that growth, not keeping that growth at bay, basically, mm. and having these massive um, amounts of burnable timber and plants and shrubs that usually would burn mm. in 20, 30-year intervals. And so some of that kind of mentality had carried out to um, to the Hawaiian Islands. So, you know, suppression-only tactics, not focusing on the prevention side, mm-hmm. not focusing on pre-fire management, so what you do to change the landscape in order to mm-hmm. reduce the fire threat around an area. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of it actually... Um, there, there's a lot of, um, there were a few guys who were in the business that were very forward thinking and they thought, okay, how do we address this issue? We're not getting any funding to do anything outside of fire suppression. What do we do? And um, over a decade ago, back in, before 2000, when our organization formed a group of um, you know, fire chiefs and um, heads of um, the land the land management agencies, they got together to f- to think how we're going to address this issue. And they formed this group called North Kona Fire and Fuels Group. And it was really just a way to focus just in this specific area in North Kona on the Big Island. Um, Kona is the dry part of the island. Yes, exactly. So North Kona and South Kohala is basically the hotbed, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. There's too many fire puns in this world. Um, but, uh, we, you know, we had... Um, 
a growing wildfire problem in, in these areas, and, and these guys were wondering, what, what can we do to actually uh, make it so that we're not spending so much money, so much effort, and risking our firefighters' lives to fight these major fires that are starting to happen? And they decided to create that group, the North Kona Fire and Fuels Group, which then emerged into a formal organization, West Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization, just to focus on that area, but to create a nonprofit that would actually help start bringing funds in that will, um, you know, federal funds that can actually help implement, um, you know, on the ground, pre-fire management, outreach and education, and even post-fire rehabilitation of our lands. So you were saying earlier that um, you weren't receiving federal, Hawaii wasn't receiving federal funds to do anything besides fire suppression. Why was this organization able to receive federal funds now for doing these other steps in the fire Mm -hmm. um, management system? Yeah, again, a lot of it ties into that nonprofit um, status, having a nonprofit entity that can actually spend time grant writing and um, putting out proposals to various federal um, agencies and federal federal grant programs to start bringing funding to Hawaii because we really weren't getting any federal funding for anything outside of that. And did it also mm-hmm. mark like a shift in the federal government's priorities? Though mm-hmm. as it well? definitely like, mm-hmm. were people beginning to understand fire ecology better. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so it, it par- partially is that. Again, it, you know, you have these um, guys like Wayne Ching for one. He's this legend. Um, and really helped start this wildfire management program for the division of forest, the state division of forestry and wildlife um, agency in Hawaii, and you know really really in, started to institutionalize wildfire management as part of as part of their scope of work, and you know people like that have really pushed the envelope in terms of getting Hawaii to be more forward thinking in terms of fire suppression, and then. We have, um, like, a lot of our grant funding actually has been coming from the U.S. Forest Service. They have a grant program called the Wildland Urban Interface um, Competitive Grant Program, and they'll assist um, organizations like ours to, to implement projects that are, you know, more focused on pre-fire management, outreach education, and that sort of scope mm-hmm. of work. Yeah. What does community outreach look like? You know, depending on the grant, my, my um, project plan will change accordingly, but the way it's changed has been very innovative. I give a lot of credit to our executive director, um, Elizabeth Pickett, and our board of directors who have really, and technical advisors who have really helped reshape how how we focus on outreach and education. So originally it was, um, you know, we started by really just getting the awareness out there because again, you know, a lot of travelers who come there don't know that there's wildfire issues and they might park their car in dry grass and then you have a sudden fire. Um, and then there's that awareness level from people who live there, too, whether it's the actual awareness that there are fires in the area or an awareness that they can actually do something to protect themselves. Um, so that's kind of where we started. And over the years, we've really grown to start um, start actually empowering communities to actually act act within themselves, act within the group to implement their own projects, start their own community groups, really, you know, kind of like a neighborhood watch program, but focusing on wildfires and wildfire projects. So whether that means, you know, having a chipper day where, you know, we contract the chipper out for, for a two-day period and people can help each other out, clear their yards of any uh, flammable debris. And then we're, we're in this mode right now where we're working with communities statewide 
to help them become Firewise Communities, which is a natu- national program through the National Fire Protection Association. And mm-hmm. it's a way to kind of validate these efforts and also opens up funding opportunities for them as well. And so these are communities in the, like, peri-urban or rural um, areas. Um, does that include, like, a lot of ranchers? Mm-hmm. Um, what does that lifestyle look like or yeah. those communities look like? So every community we work with is quite different, and, um, it, you know, it's part of what makes my job really special and what I really enjoy about it is to get to meet really every type of person that lives in the Hawaiian Islands. And you get a whole range, you know, you get people who live who come there to retire, right, and um, start a new life in Hawaii. Some people go out there to live a self-sustaining life. Um, and then you, of course, have native populations there, too. You have a very high pop, um percentage of native Hawaiians that, that live still on the Hawaiian Islands. And, um, and that, you know, there's a lot of um, historical kind of precedent for how these communities emerge and how each one interacts. Um, but, you know, our organization itself, we're, you know, we're nonpartisan. We're, you know, we work with anyone, literally anyone who has a wildfire problem, whether you're homeless, whether you have a home, whether you have a million dollar home, you know, our whole goal is to protect your homes um, and communities from burning. And that also goes along with your natural landscapes. So that means, you know, if you're a rancher and you have um, 100,000 acres that you need to upkeep and, you know, you're getting fires that are burning constantly, how can we help you use more strategic grazing practices that'll actually manage the fuels around you? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing we really stress is you don't have to go it alone as a community. And so that's that's the next step we're taking as an organization is how do we innovate new approaches to get not just the community involved, but every single stakeholder involved. And that's a practice that's being and what that really means, again, is you need to have the politicians on board. You need to have planners. You need to have um, educators and designers and every part of society involved in the process in order to actually have effective, meaningful um, project implementation that'll protect people from public safety hazards. Yeah. And you've spoken a bit about, um, I mean, including all these stakeholders, one of those would obviously be scientists, mm-hmm. um, fire ecologists. Um, but you've spoken a little bit about how that's been a tricky um, bridge to uh, create. Mm-hmm. Um, say more. <laughs> sure. Um, so nationally, it's a, um, you know, nationally you have this. Um, divide between the research world, the academic world, and people who are out on the ground, um, you know, quote-unquote managers, right, land managers. You know, it's neither is wrong or right. You know, um, there's just this disconnect in the communication between the two. The research on, you know, the academic side is not getting down to the management level for various reasons. And that's even more amplified on the islands because there are other things like race and ethnicity that also play a part in that. But the main thing is, you know, you're, um, a lot of the research that's happening won't necessarily tie into what the managers actually need on the ground. And so what our organization did, um, working with the U.S. Forest Service in Hawaii, the IPIF office there, and University of Hawaii, and then Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization kind of as a three-legged stool to help create this program that will bridge the gap between science and management in the wildfire world. And so in Hawaii, a lot of that means, you know, the conservation world. How do we get conservation-minded people to create research that will have applications for fire managers or 
um, ranchers who need to know how they can, you know, create a fuel break that'll actually protect their their ranch lands. And it's of course a challenge. It's a very unique opportunity, and it's a way that the wildfire world can help demonstrate a process that other gaps between research and um, management, whether that's in you know coastal restoration or you know you can even take it into urban design too. Or there's a lot of applications, and um, and it's all through this um, program called the Pacific Fire Exchange, which is has been taken off lately, and there's been a lot of great um, products that have been coming out to help start getting that information from that, you know, academic world into the hands of, of land managers. And then um, it's not just the Pacific. We have, it's all part of this consortia called the um, Joint Fire Science Program, which, um, you know, the, the entire nation is covered by various different consortia that are not based on the state's um, boundaries, but actually based on the ecological boundaries of each um, eco-biological areas across the state. Um, it's been highly successful. It's been really great to see nationwide this um, coming together of um, people in these various worlds to actually start sharing information. And, and So how did you come to the wildfire management scene? It was very serendipitous. It was... Um, so I... Went to school at UC Berkeley, uh, graduated back in 2012. The fire component actually came really randomly. I didn't have enough coursework. Uh, Well, I couldn't get into a bunch of courses. I was kind of um, always behind because I was a spring admit. Um, So it was always hard for me to get into certain courses. And there was one semester where I just could not get into um, the courses I needed. So I decided, well... There's this fire ecology course. It sounds really interesting. It's already four weeks in, but I'm going to take it anyway. And I ended up taking the course um, under the wing of um, Kevin Krasnow, who was a um, working on his um, doctorate at the time. And he really helped kind of catch me up with the class, and I really started getting involved in the work he was doing. And um, this was all under Scott Stevens' fire ecology course. And then, sure enough, the next semester, I worked in the fire lab, looking at tree, wing- tree rings um, for four hours straight and, um, you know, seeing what years fires happen during certain years, because you can actually use tree rings to date fires going back hundreds of years. Um, and again, that was another eye-opening experience. And I just started learning more and more about fire. And then I ended up um, graduating and working for Cal Fire as a forestry assistant, and I would actually go out with a team of three other people out in Lake Tahoe and assess different homes um, for their defensible space measures to see how basically burnable their home landscape is. And under California regulations, if you're in certain areas that are um, wildfire-prone, you actually have to have defensible space. So we went around and kind of um, mostly educated Community, uh, community members about what they can do to, to fix some of their problems that we assessed. Mm. And that then kind of led me out into the wildfire world out in Hawaii mm. and the rest is history. In Lake Tahoe, how were the um, existing practices of creating defensible space? So one of the major differences is, again, the types of vegetation that you have um, in Tahoe versus in Hawaii. So in Tahoe, you have conifer forests that are part of the native ecosystem. And, um, you know, you get a lot of leaf litter, um, a lot of pine pine needles that'll build up near homes or on gutters. So people will actually 
Um, you know, in order to have defensible space, you want to make sure a lot of that litter is cleared around your home. We generally say um, you need to have at least 30 feet of spacing. The first 30 feet around your home, basically, you want to do more intensive um, management of your landscape to prevent fires from spreading right right to the edge of mm-hmm. your home. And just keep going out from there. But you really start close to the home. What can you focus mm-hmm. on your home structure itself to prevent embers from flying in? What did you see? Were a lot of people practicing oh. this? Yeah, it was it was spotty, and it, it depended on the communities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you would go to some communities, and you would see that you know almost everyone had leaf litter on their roofs, which is a major um, threat because your roof is actually going to be your most vulnerable part of your home during a fire. And I think that then ties into the culture of it. So if you're in a community that has a culture of that and you don't see other people taking steps and measures to prevent wildfires from, um, you know, um, burning your home, um, it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that's Mm -hmm. then something that we take into mind when we work with communities. We're trying to build culture shifts rather than just programs or, Mm. um, you know, small projects here and there. We really are trying to shift communities to take proactive action versus reactive comprehensive projects, not incomplete projects, um, and really just get to this point where fire is always on the mind, whether that's in Tahoe, whether that's in Hawaii. We're living with fire in these wildland urban interfaces. But it's not like a fear-based thing. It's more of like right, risk right, management. Right. You insurance. have to have a little fear. You have to okay. have a little fear because, you know, it is, it is a fear, you know, to have your home burn. No one wants to see their home burn. No one wants to see their community burn, your neighborhood, your businesses, right? So wildfire is unique in that sense um, in that it's very apolitical. Everyone can agree on, you know, not wanting to see your community burn down. And it really helps create this lead-in into other projects that the community wants to do. So we've seen communities who will take, you know, they'll take the wildfire actions that they need to take and they start having community bonding. And then they actually start working on other projects that they might not necessarily have been able to do before because there might have been political challenges or social challenges within the group. You also uh, grew up in L.A. and you were educated in Berkeley and whatnot. You're kind of just raise the city boy. Yeah. yeah. And so, mm-hmm. and you're going and working with largely rural communities mm-hmm. or more on the rural edge. Um, in America, as we've seen, there's a rural urban divide. Mm-hmm. Um, how has that uh, been for one, educating you on mm-hmm. um, that divide? And also, how have you tried to bridge that? Mm-hmm. That's a very good question. I haven't done a lot of reflection in that. So, this will give me a chance to kind of explore my mind and, and my experiences, but has definitely been an exciting challenge for me to, um, you know, kind of deconstruct my urban, my urban mind, really, and start thinking about how rural landscapes work and how people work with the landscape um, in various ways to achieve, you know, multiple goals. In general, I mean, I always grew up around nature. I always, um, you know, my parents always tried to expose me to the natural world. But I never thought it would actually be a career of mine. And I never thought that I would actually be living in a tiny town, you know, of, of a couple of thousand people versus a few million people. Um, so that has been a challenge in itself. But I really have noticed that I thrive more in those environments. And I really enjoy um, human interactions. I really enjoy working with people and 
living in rural areas really gives you that chance to develop um, relationships that you might not normally have in certain urban settings where it might be a little more isolated, even though there's more people. It's kind of that weird paradox. In the rural areas, you, you see pretty much everyone, right, every day, whether they're at the store or just in formal or informal settings, but um, you have to really be careful about your interactions too. You, um, you have to be a little more careful about what you say or what you align with. Um, still be true to yourself, but also understand that your actions will have um, impacts on how other people um, react to it or um, perceive certain issues. So again, with wildfire, you know, we're always being careful about how we introduce um, wildfire outreach to communities because what we might say to one community about not using this material might actually be a problem for communities that can't afford to use certain materials to build their homes. Mm. Um, so it's, it, it is, it's been a great challenge, and I really have appreciated working with Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization to, to learn how I can better interact in, the, in that rural landscape. Yeah. And I think you talked about this a little bit, but it's also like stopping the problem of scientists or policymakers, whatnot, coming Mm -hmm. from the urban areas and saying, here is what you need to do. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like you're maybe trying to have something more collaborative Mm -hmm. where both sides can learn from one another. Right. That is a huge part of our organization. Um, We don't do any project unless we have buy-in from not just agencies, not just from the academic side. There needs to be buy-in on the community side, too. And we've built in a process within our organization to actually incorporate all of that within our governing body. So we actually have a technical advisory panel that will um, that are you know fire chiefs and ranchers and all these experts all across the state who can help guide our vision towards certain projects and help kind of give um, agency basically to a lot of our um, the project ideas, but it also needs to have support from community members, from um, landowners down on the, on the ground level. Um, and when we have that buy-in from all sides, we have really seen our projects take off because when you have that, that sort of buy-in, you have projects that are effective, efficient, they are meaningful, grounded. And so that's where the word collaboration really is an important part of our organization, and we've really tried to own that word. You can't, you can't succeed in this modern, ingrained world if you don't have collaboration on all parts. Um, and we hope that's a message that carries out to not just everyone else in the wildfire world, but really the rest of the world. We need more collaboration mm. uh, to solve our, our um, wicked problems. Mm. I have talked a little bit about like receiving federal funding, um, and I don't know how much your organization sort of relies on that. And is the funding for fire prevention and management um, apolitical, or do you expect anything to change with a um, new administration? In general, again, wildfire is a little more of an apolitical issue. You get, um, you know, even in the U.S., you'll get a lot of bills that get signed with both parties supporting it. When, um, when we have political change or new political atmospheres, of course, there's always concern, um, no matter what side um, takes power. You, you don't know. Wildfire is not always the first thing that you hear during a campaign, right? Or you, we didn't hear it at all during the election season. So, um, you know, we don't know what will happen. But, or climate change. Or climate change, which is actually an important part of the equation for us, too, in a way. Um, 
So that's a, that's a concern, certainly, if climate change is not being addressed um, in the new administration, um, that might close the door for a lot of other funding options. Um, you know, climate change has big impacts on the Hawaiian Islands. You can't ignore it. It's happening all around. Um, whether you believe it's human cause or not, it's happening on the Hawaiian Islands. And so we really need to start addressing it because it has major impacts on our, our wildfire behavior that we've been seeing. We're getting more and longer drought periods, heavier, you know, bigger storms. We've had record um, storms hit our islands the past few years, which means more rainfall, more growth. And then you have these long drought areas, uh, mm-hmm. drought periods that um, basically exponentially create a bigger wildfire threat. So if the mm-hmm. funding isn't matching that, then we're going to have some real serious issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I saw in the news today uh, there was a fire in Oahu. Yeah, correct. There was one western Oahu, and I actually have some friends that live in the valley that was burning this last night and this morning. And um, it was a harrowing experience for them. Um, it was especially interesting because we just did outreach at the, the school, Kamaile um, Academy, that's um, right in that valley where the fire was, um, was burning. And they actually closed the school today because the smoke was just way too intense for the um, kids to be around. And so one of my friends, um, Joe, actually gave me a call and asked, you know, what do I do? What do I do during, you know, um, when, when this is happening? What am I supposed to do around the home? Um, to start preparing if I need to evacuate. That's the kind of mindset we want to see um, from people before the fire. Before happens. the fire happens, right? Not when the fire is actually happening. So, um, do you have a website or any any way people could reach you if they have any additional questions or interests? Yes. Yeah, so we do have a website. It's HawaiiWildfire.org, and it's all spelled out HawaiiWildfire.org. And um, we have an email address that you can reach us at too. It's admin administration, so A-D-M-I-N at hawaiiwildfire.org, and you can connect with us. It doesn't matter if you don't live in Hawaii, if you're just interested in the work we we do or you want to contribute somehow. We're also a nonprofit, so we always are welcome to donations to help with our work to protect our community's lands and, and our waters. It's also a great tool for you know people in Hawaii who um, are looking for resources. We have a whole plethora of resources out there to help you. Um, take action around your own home, with your own family, and also with the rest of your community. Well, Pablo, thank you so much for coming in and telling us about wildfire management. Thank you. It's so good to be back in Berkeley. Aloha.